Well, I want you to imagine, come back with me to the 18th century, I want you to imagine that you are good friends with Benedict Arnold. Now, hold on, I'm talking pre-treasonous, pre-traitor Benedict Arnold, okay? Let's remember that he was a war hero long before he was a traitor. Let's remember that he, along with Ethan Allen, did an amazing job with the capture of Fort Ticonderoga. And again, at the Battle of Saratoga, he showed great bravery and fortitude. Certainly early on, there were copious amounts of patriotism and loyalty for the American cause. But let's say that over time, you've noticed that your friend has become, well, a bit complacent about the cause. Dare I even say cynical. You're stationed with him in Philadelphia, and he seems to be far more interested in in social gatherings and, and high society and making money on the side than he is in serving with his comrades in arms or pleasing his commander-in-chief. In effect, you've noticed a, a distinct drift in his patriotism and his loyalty. Well, in Philadelphia, he meets and marries 18-year-old Peggy Shippen, whose father is a judge and a loyalist sympathizer having even done business on the side with the enemy during the occupation. And though you could never imagine your buddy Benedict Arnold actually becoming a turncoat, you've seen it happen before to disastrous consequences. This drift is real. What do you do as a friend and as a fellow soldier? Well, that answer is the very crux of this well-disputed text today. No doubt, this is one of the most, if not the most debated passages in Scripture. Theological camps abound with as many as five to six different views as to what is the estate of the people being described here, the spiritual estate. And I'll tell you, though theology plays an important part, I would say a very important part to understanding this text, it is submissive and secondary to the main point of the text. So while we're going to spend some time understanding this theology, I'm not going to let us hang in the realm of the theological, because it is far more pastoral So we're going to press on, and we're going to make sure that we understand what this preacher wants his friends to understand. These Jewish believers, most likely in a house church, perhaps in Rome. The real purpose of this message, if you want to write this down, is a warning shot over the bow to his friends. You see, there's drift in the Hebrew church. And drifting has a destination. That's the title of today's sermon. Drifting has a destination. And the same principle we see 2,000 years ago 
is incredibly applicable today for us. If one's drifting direction, if a church's drifting direction is not halted and turned around, it is disastrous. In fact, it is disastrous to the point of no return. We are called to do something about it and without delay. Let me recap just a moment with you, if I could. Last week, we covered chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. And after the author began a section on the high priesthood of Christ, watch this, according to the order of, what, you remember? Melchizedek in chapter 5, I mentioned it's like he throws on the brakes, downshifts, pulls up the emergency brake, and turns the vehicle sideways and says, I got to cover something first here. What looks like an afterthought is, in fact, not an afterthought at all, but it's arresting the congregation, if you will, to listen. Because he's got to spend three chapters on the high priesthood of Jesus Christ, and they ain't getting it. In fact, they're not even listening. Do you remember what the exhortation was last week? Like a Dutch uncle, look at verse 11. He says, concerning him... We have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become, my version says, dull of hearing, but that's almost sanitized. In the Greek, it is literally sluggish of hearing. Turn a page over and look at chapter 6, verse 12. So that you will not be sluggish. That's the same word. So this, this whole text fits together. 5.11 through 6.12. I don't want you to be sluggish, but I want you to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. By the way, is there a picture in the book of Hebrews? Maybe a list of a bunch of faithful people, faithful Christians? Where is that? It's a hall of faith, chapter 11. So though these are not baby believers, they're still on milk. They don't even want solid food. In fact, they've forgotten the ABCs of Christianity. So therefore, the preacher wants to be able to press on to that which is important. Because what do they see in the near future? In fact, what are they currently starting to experience? Persecution. Milk is not going to carry their constitution through for such a difficult time. They need solid food. But he doesn't have time to go back and reteach them again. So with like an arrested development, he says, listen up. I've got to tell you some tough stuff. I've got to mature you very quickly. And he's going to take chapter 7 all the way through 10, 18 and talk about the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. Deep theology on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they're going to need it to go through persecution. They have been willfully sluggish of hearing, and it has resulted in stunting their growth. As we progress through this pericope, you're going to see exhortation. We saw that last week. You're going to see a heavy-duty warning this week, but, but don't be discouraged because then the next time we meet, 
it's going to be encouragement. In fact, I kind of wrote, you know, just in plain speak how he might sum these three sections. Hey, you're not listening. There are eternal consequences for drifting. But I have confidence that you will hold fast. Exhortation, warning, encouragement. We're looking at the middle section today, the warning. Two points will see us through this passage safely. Number one, exhortation to press on to maturity. You might write that down. Exhortation to press on to maturity. That's verses 1 through 3. And then verses 4 through 8. Explanation that apostates will not inherit salvation. Explanation that apostates will not inherit salvation. Let's look at the first one together. I'll read again verses 1 through 3. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. He wants them to leave these, these good but basic things behind and press on towards maturity. The mature things that he's going to discuss, that's, that's what he's going to pick up again in chapters 7 through 10. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's the high priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. And what we see here in verses 1 and 2 might seem a little out of place for a basic uh, Christianity 101 course. These are kind of some unusual topics, but they would be very familiar to a first century Jew who has come out of Judaism and is now a believer in the church. Repentance from dead works. Think about it. What did the Jews come out of? First century Judaism, right? You had to obey every jot and tittle. All 613 laws. Why? Because that is the only way you could gain favor with God. And God was pleased with me if I only took X number of steps on the Sabbath. Or if I didn't eat that and only ate that and I washed this way and not that way. And I had flactories, flactories, you know, hanging from you know, little boxes on my head which had scripture in it or tassels. All those things gained me favor with God. No, they were dead works. And so they have repented from dead works. But then we also see things like, you might call it biblical instruction with ceremonial traditions. There was probably a sense, well, it kind of would be like a new members class. There was probably a sense in which when they came out of Judaism, there was uh, certain traditions of coming into the church. So it might sound something like this. Hey, we can talk later again about the details of our new members class, but for right now, persecution is knocking at our door and I have to grow children into adults quickly. So we'll go back and cover those basics later. Let me ask you a question. Why might we also need to mature Christians very rapidly? 
as your elders, why might we be pressed for time to take you at a much quicker rate to maturity? You've heard me say it before, but my pastor growing up used to joke about the things that drove the success markers of American evangelicalism. It was the three B's, buildings, butts, and budgets, right? And to assume the very, very best, you, you might be able to say, well, if we have a bigger building, we can minister to more people. And if we can put more bottoms in the seats, well, more people get to hear about the word and the gospel. And of course, if you have a bigger budget, you can also give more to missions. But even assuming the very best, what if we realize that the world in which we now live, the very free world, is frankly an anomaly compared to what we've seen throughout church history? What if our world has changed in the blink of an eye? What if we have a perfect storm on top of us right now with the worldwide pandemic, a lockdown, new restrictions, more governmental control, all done in the name of public health. What if a majority of the evangelical churches had less than half attending right now through either complacency or fear? What if an Equality Act was going through Congress right now that would create a privileged class of sexual deviants and bring it on the level of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which caused immediate problems for religious freedom. What if all that had happened? Might there be a reason to mature us quickly to endure the times ahead? Might there be a reason for us to learn how to navigate these waters? To be more nimble? Might it change what we focus on as pastors? I'll tell you how it's affecting me. I'll tell you what keeps me up. One, my energies are immediately put towards how I can rapidly mature this body to sort of a SEAL Team 6 Christian level. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, think about SEAL Team 6. Able to navigate tough situations, drop in, do their work, get out, survive on less. They're not worried about their comfort. My goal is to doggedly reach anyone and everyone in our locale with the gospel. Being very clear with them as to the cost of discipleship. Plugging them into our healthy church, into a small group, getting someone to disciple them. And looking at many of you saying, I need you to rise to the occasion. You're like, I haven't done this before. I can only handle one or two right now. I need you to handle three. I need you to start a small group. I'm not ready. Let's get you ready. If I could share half of the conversations I have weekly with pastors, you guys would be shocked at the disaster that is on the horizon. Churches are crumbling. People are not coming back. Those that are there are divided, if not completely ill-equipped. I've had friends of mine, much larger churches, five times this church, 
And they'll say, Rod, I don't have near the number of leaders that you guys have. Can you imagine going into these times that I just described without co-laborers? I couldn't do it. I can't do it. My energies are being put into planning well for a future where there indeed will be limited freedoms, lost tax-exempt status, and frankly, career changes for many of you. This is the situation of the first century church. It may be for different reasons. It may be brought about by a different way, but it's the same thing. I would say the only difference is is that I don't see complacency in you. But the externals, the circumstances are not too different. We know from the book of Hebrews, they've already had their property seized. There's a tremendous amount of peer pressure. There's persecution on the horizon. Sunday's not a holiday. They're already being ridiculed. And there's pressure upon them for meeting to worship. They've started to withdraw from society. Chapter 5, verse 12 talks about how they're just starting to shrink back a little bit. They're not sharing their faith. And like Benedict Arnold, they are a step from punting the faith. So what is this preacher going to do? He's going to put the hammer down. And again, one of the toughest passages in Scripture. He's going to shoot one over the bow and he's going to call them to reverse the drift. And as I mentioned earlier, theology is very important. But if you hear the passion of my voice, if we go and just stay in the realm of theology and don't do something, we have done violence to the text. This preacher loves these people. These are his friends. He's scared to death that they don't realize not only how far they've drifted, but there is a point of no return. So what does he do? Frankly, he puts it on the line. He puts it out there. He risks their friendship to tell them the truth. He wants to get them to listen up. He wants them to stay faithful to the end. Look at our second point. Explanation that apostates will not inherit salvation. Verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. Circle that phrase. And then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God, and put him to open shame. Now, this preacher uses this word impossible. In fact, he's going to use it four times in this epistle. Let me give you the other three. You don't need to turn there. Chapter 6, verse 18, it is impossible for God to lie. Chapter 10, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Chapter 11, verse 6, and without faith, 
it is impossible to please him. Now, I'm no Greek scholar, but I'm pretty sure impossible here means exactly what I think it means. It can't happen. God cannot lie. The blood of bulls and goats will not save. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. So whoever this is describing here, who's been enlightened, who's tasted of the heavenly gift, who's been made a partaker with the Holy Spirit, he's tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. So I'm a little confused. I like the other verses I gave. Impossible, impossible, impossible. This one, well, it's a little confusing. Because we also know it's impossible to lose your salvation, right? We do know that, right? We're good Protestants, okay? Don. 1029, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. That's impossible, right? Romans 838, we all know this for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to what? Separate us. From the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Impossible. You keep using that word, right? So what's going on here? Here it says it is impossible for someone who falls away and has been a Christian. All those things are describing a Christian, right? Tasted, enlightened. It is impossible to renew them to repentance. And yet we also know it is impossible to lose our salvation. So what's going on here? What's the answer? And everyone's thinking, yeah, how's he going to handle this? And this is where things go off the rails. Because preachers, rightly so, will then dive deep into the theological and we'll make our best legal, theological argument, according to our position, whatever that may be. There's lots of people on, I would say, both sides, more than both sides of this argument. But we end up missing the forest for the trees. So we're going to dive into the theological. But I'm not going to leave us there. I'm going to pull us back up in a minute. I'm going to say, now... Now that we have been equipped with this truth, what are we going to do about it? Are you ready? Let's take about five, seven minutes and go into the theological, but not stay there. The theological is important. It is essential. But the main point is that drifting has a destination. There's no less than five views on this text. I'm going to give you the three main ones. The first one is an Arminian position. 
Since faith is something you give to God to gain salvation, you can lose it when you no longer have faith. The problem with that is, is that there are just too many scriptures contrary to this. Faith is a gift of God, not as a result of works. And there are too many scriptures explaining eternal security, some of which I've already given you. So let's just not spend any time on that position. The second one is a hypothetical position. It's something that is impossible to happen, a Christian losing its salvation, but the preacher is using it for rhetorical effect to basically just scare these people into turning around. So he's trying to just get their attention. If it could happen, this is what would happen, dot, 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 so therefore do this. The problem is, is that these are stern warnings, and this preacher is really serious. Plus, anytime you start to go down the road of theological, synchronized swimming, you're going to end up with, with problems, okay? You have to take the text at face value. The third one, and the one I think that is correct, is called a perseverance of the saints or a Calvinist view. But, but frankly, as I said this morning to someone, it's just a biblical view. It's not rocket science. Look, we know what is true throughout Scripture. Repentance and faith are gifts. That's abundantly clear. That is indisputable. Gifts from God, not something man gives God. Number two, book of James and replete throughout the New Testament, genuine faith produces what? Fruit. Faith without works is dead. We get that, okay? Thirdly, genuine faith is not just given at justification or salvation, but the same faith given at justification is the same faith that perseveres through you, grows through you until the day of Jesus Christ, or you die to go to, to heaven, okay? The faith that God gives grows us. It perseveres. It's not ultimately us persevering, though we're called to do so. Philippians 2, 11 and 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But it doesn't end there, does it? For it is God who is at work in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So we're called to work out our salvation, but ultimately it is God, the Holy Spirit, that carries us along, that perseveres through us. This is why you have centuries, 20 centuries of martyrs. You think they really did this on their own? No. It was the faith that God gives them by the power of the Holy Spirit that allows them to stand in the face of persecution and adversity with guns to their head and not deny Jesus Christ, but proclaim him till the end. So those three things we know to be true. I don't have to be some super deep theologian to hold on to what I know to be true and written throughout Scripture. Repentance and faith are a gift. Genuine faith always produces fruit and genuine faith perseveres to the end. Let me give you some verses. Philippians 1.6 For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, what? Will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He began the good work, he will complete it. 1 Peter 1.4 To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 2 Tim 1.12, Paul writes in his swan song, 
For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Our own doctrinal statement is clear. All who are born of the Spirit through faith in Christ can have assurance of salvation and are eternally secure in Christ. Every believer is promised positional, progressive, and ultimate sanctification. Just taking that right there, which is just an overview of perseverance of the saints, those who persevere to the end prove they have genuine faith. Those who do not, didn't. Let me say that again. Those who persevere to the end prove they have genuine faith. Those that don't, didn't. You know, the Puritans used to watch their own die because they wanted to see if they had genuine faith, and they knew that they did if they died at peace, if they died with joy. But if they were frustrated and fearful and fought it, well, then they didn't know. It wasn't that confidence. Look, we know this also to be true from Scripture. No one realized that Judas wasn't the real deal until he wasn't, Right? No one picked up on that. I mean, Jesus even says it, right? Isn't that what we learn in equipping hour? And they're just, you know, munching down. They're not even noticing. They don't get it. And yet we know from Scripture that he had been drifting for some time. In Acts chapter 8, Simon the magician believed. It says he believed. And yet it turned out that he was in it for fame. And it, he, he proved himself to be an apostate. Paul talks about Demas. In Colossians, as a faithful gospel partner, a co-laborer, on par with Dr. Luke, the evangelist. And yet, what do we see in 2 Timothy chapter 4? For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Apostasy. It's a fact of this life, this side of heaven. Not all who profess Christ actually possess Christ. Time shows things to be true. Those who persevere until the end. Christ is even clear about what's called functional apostasy. In Matthew 7, those who never actually say, I don't believe anymore, but yet live a life that shows that they do not. Matthew 7, 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Not I knew you and I don't know you anymore, but I never knew you. Thus, all of this makes sense when we read 1 John 2.19, they went out from us because they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown 
that they all are not of us. So who is this audience? Who is this person in Hebrews chapter 6? Well, again, we don't have to go far. Christ describes in the Gospels who this is in the parable of the sower. It is the third response. Matthew chapter 13, others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. Do you remember in Christ's explanation why they were choked out? It's the worries of the world. The world pressing in on them. The peer pressure, the persecution, the high cost of discipleship. And to be frank, I don't have to tell you this. We've all had gut-wrenching personal experiences of friends who've walked away from the faith. In fact, the most horrifying thing that you can think that has ever been said to you is probably, yeah, you know what? I never really believed in that stuff anyway. And it's just a small taste of the betrayal that our Lord felt. And so this is the phrase that we need to camp on here. And then have fallen away. Let me tell you why it's impossible to renew again those who have had a Christian experience, been part of a Christian church, served well, learned their Bibles, maybe even were preachers, and why is it, it is impossible to renew them again? Verse 7, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. They again crucify and put him to open shame. Let me describe it this way. The earliest creed as a follower of Christ what is it? Jesus is Lord. Say that with me. Jesus is Lord. Okay? When you no longer believe, either, either audibly or functionally. And y'all know what I mean by functionally, right? The guy who says he's a Christian, quits going to church, leads a life of rebellion, goes into the world, and then just somehow holds on to some sort of tradition until the end. You know, or maybe his baptism card. But he's a functional apostate. When we go from following Christ, serving with the body of Christ, we are daily claiming He is Lord. When we apostatize, what are we saying? He's not Lord. We have to realize that's what's being said. And when we say He's not Lord, guess what we're doing? We're taking ourselves out from the foot of the cross and we are standing with those who say, why don't you come down from the cross if you are indeed God? That's what apostasy is. We have to realize it for what it is. It's not ambiguity. It's not ignorance. It's not disillusionment. It's not brought about by spiritual abuse if I could throw something out there. It is about punting the faith 
because you don't want him on the throne. You want to be on the throne. Now, I want you to think about that. When we talk about it being impossible to renew them again to repentance, your first gut reaction may be, whoa, is, is God just ticked off then? Is that why he won't renew them again to repentance? Is he some sort of cosmic despot that got his feelings hurt? Some of you may even say, well, this seems a little unfair. Let me bring perspective here. You cannot reject the only means that God has offered for salvation and expect to be saved by that. The rope is thrown down. All you have to do is grab and believe. If you reject it, you cannot blame God as to why you were not rescued. Okay? In simple terms. To make it in personal terms, you cannot deny Christ and expect to be saved by him. Dr. Muller says it well. Those who refuse the gospel will justly bear judgment for all eternity for their rejection of it. Feel the weight of this. This is rejection of the Christ. Apostasy is rejection. Whether you faked it or whether you were an atheist from the beginning, it's the same result. So people get really tied up about this and, well, it does mean this or it doesn't mean that or it's impossible. Come on. 2 Timothy 2, 11. It is a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. It ain't rocket science. Verse 13, if we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And I used to look at that and think, oh, that means if we have weak faith, he's still faithful. That's not what the text says there. Faithless, do you know what the word is? Ah, pisteo, apostate. If he is without faith, if we are without faith, Christ remains faithful to who he is in the word of God. And the judgment of man rests upon us. Your sins, if you have rejected Christ, were not paid on the cross. Oh, there's plenty of blood to go around for everyone who believes. But Christ died to purchase a bride. Those who are in hell are paying for their sins. Who's in hell? Those who rejected the free offer of salvation. Whether at the beginning or whether they were a hypocrite for 10 years. It ain't rocket science. He then illustrates this in verses 7 and 8. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed. And it ends up being burned. If you're a Jew, you get this. In a Gregarian society, you get this. But you don't have to be a Jew in the first century to get this. You just have to know the book of James, right? Faith without works is dead. 
genuine faith produces fruit. That which doesn't is not. I like the phrase here, though, and this is where we're going to transition from the theological back to the pastoral. I want, you to, I want to give you a glimpse of this pastor's heart here. He's preaching it fat and heavy. He's trying to get their attention. He is swinging for the fences. He does not care about stepping on toes. Why? Because he loves them with a godlike love. He is more concerned about their souls than their feelings. And he realizes that drifting has a destination. Look at this again here in verse 8. And it is, what? Close to being cursed. You see, there's, there's hope here. They've been drifting for a while, but there's hope. There's hope. The preacher wants us to understand this. He wants the original audience to understand this so that they will respond and respond quickly. To use a modern day illustration, he wants them to understand that just because they're wearing the team jersey, if they are up in the cheap seats or outside the stadium, just because they're wearing the jersey doesn't make them part of the team. Okay? And so what does he want them to do? Get on the field. Get on the field. He cares for them. He wants them to understand. I'll give you sort of a Baptist feel here. The dangerous destination of deliberate drifting that ends in damnation. Now, I know that's kind of silly, but you won't forget it. Okay? Let me say it again. The dangerous destination of deliberate drifting. Because, here's the key. It ends in damnation. Can I just make one more side note here before I go back to the pastoral? I'm going to pick on my pastor friends, my theologian friends. If we leave it in the theological and we don't get pastoral, we do violence to the text. I want to say that again. We do violence to the text. Because this preacher is not saying, I want you to sit around and think about it while you smoke your pipe drink your coffee. I, I want you to think about all the nuances and the different camps. What does he want to be done here? He wants action. He wants action. He wants them to move on this and move on it quickly. And so I have commentary after commentary after commentary at home, and I'm thankful for all of them, and they're wonderful and they're deeply theological. But dead gummit, I want to see more where pastors are saying, and here's how we implemented. I went through my membership directory and I started to doggedly pursue every single person who wasn't yet back at church. Okay? I'm going to pursue every single person who's playing select sports on Sunday instead of being with the body of Christ. I'm going to pursue every single person who's not growing in Christ. Why? To be heavy-handed? No! Because drifting has a destination. And I don't want to presume it'll all be fine. Guys, it's not just elders who are going to have to give an account one day. Each of us are connected in the body of Christ. Who are you overlooking? Because, frankly, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be time-consuming. You know, to the best of my knowledge, no one ever warned 
Benedict Arnold of the drift. And even his earthly cause had a destination. You may not realize what happened after he became a turncoat, but living in England, his reputation worthless, he was in debt, his name forever linked with the label traitor. His health began to decline from gout. He was then diagnosed with dropsy, moved out of the city, uh, fell into a, a mental state for four days where he, he didn't know what was going on and immediately died at the age of 60. He left his poor wife in debt. He was buried without military honors. And if I could add insult to injury, a hundred years later, because of a clerical error at the parish where he was buried, his body was exhumed accidentally and dumped in an unmarked mass grave. How much more as those of us who are citizens of heaven should we take this seriously? So let's apply this. Understanding that drift is not a static position. It's not something you can just, just tread water. Yeah, y'all take Christianity a little too seriously. I'm not punning the faith. I'm just going to kind of tread water out here. I'll be okay. That does not exist, okay? You're either drawing near or you're drifting away. Do we sit around and theologically debate the salvation of others from the cheap seats? We need a resounding no. No, it's not the purpose of this passage. First of all, we start with asking ourselves, does this, does this describe me? Could this possibly in some way describe me? And if it does, I'm going to call you to repentance. I'm going to call you to turn from your drifting and set your heart on Jesus Christ. Draw near. If you need help, we will swim out and come get you. But you got to rid your vocabulary of, don't worry about me, I'll be fine. I don't ever want to hear that. Okay? That's flat out a Christian acceptable lie. Secondly, we've got to get on the field and we've got to help others. You've got to get your head out of the sand. You've got to be aware. Guys, th th let me just... If you're visiting here with us today, just delete this from the tape. Metro Bible, we are not ever going to be legalistic, independent, fundamentalist, rulesy kind of people. Don't worry. I grew up in that atmosphere. We will never become that. So if that's your fear, put it out of your mind. But an area we need to grow in is I would say most of us do not realize when someone is drifting when someone is not here for a period of several weeks, and when you do realize it, let's be honest, you think the best. You assume the best. You're not concerned enough. I'm not saying you think the worst, but I'm, I'm saying you need to realize it could be bad. And you pursue with kindness and gentleness, not accusing, but you pursue. My concern is that we're not aware we get it. We got to get our head out of the sand. We got to wake up. We got to be aware of those who may be drifting. And we got to lovingly, lovingly, don't hear me ever say that we'll be tacky, lovingly, but doggedly pursue them. And if you're afraid about a bad response, 
Are, are you, you're afraid it's going to create weirdness in your relationship? Write this down. It's really, really deep here. Get over it. Get over it. It's not about you. Souls are at stake. Hey, we just talked about spiritual parenting. Let me put this in perspective. Those of you parents with kids. If you had a wayward child, teenagers, mid-20s, something like that, a wayward child, not a believer, and someone told you, would you be willing to go the rest of your earthly life and not see them if we could guarantee that they would follow Christ and be in heaven one day? There's not a parent here who wouldn't take that deal. Amen? How much more when the Lord uses us to pursue wayward spiritual children. And we actually have the tools. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. We actually have the very thing that God the Holy Spirit uses to grant repentance, wrapped in the relationship of who we are because we love them. Y'all may not know it, but sometimes when people leave church, they leave for wrong reasons and we don't hear of them anymore. I still pursue them. Do you know that? Most of them won't answer my texts, but I still reach out to them. You know why? Because Hebrews 13, 17, I'm going to stand before the Lord one day and I want to say I did everything possible to help someone not drift, especially to the point of no return. That's not just a pastoral job. That's all of our jobs. That's what this preacher is trying to teach us here today. Let me leave you with a glimpse of next week because this is heavy, okay? Look down at verse 9. The preacher has hope for his friends. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. After this heavy warning shot over the bow, this heavy warning, he says, you know what? But I have hope. I don't think, I don't think that this is describing you here. I don't know, time will tell, but I have great hope that it is not. Will you please stop drifting and draw near? Because drifting has a destination. Amen.